President Biden has put forward a rough outline of a potential corporate tax plan. Meanwhile, others in the Senate, led by Senator Ron Wyden, have one of their own. While there are many details to work out on these respective plans, one thing is clear, they will impact how you calculate your tax provision. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, Tax Provision, we're going to discuss what has been proposed in President Biden's plan and how the content of these proposals would create new challenges for already complicated calculation. And to help us do so, we are joined once again by Cross-Border Solutions tax provision expert, Howard Telson. Welcome back, Howard. Hey, Matt. It's great to be back. Thanks so much. <laughs> it is indeed. I say that only because you can hear the echo now and we're back in the Terrytown offices. So, so to be back carries a little bit more weight this time. But Howard, let's start with a basic but important question. Will these proposed tax plans impact how companies calculate their 2021 income tax provision? And if so, how? Basically, you know, if these plans are going to impact companies' 2021 tax provisions and, and how exactly they will impact them, it's really contingent upon two factors. So first off is the question of when the bill will be enacted. So this, this concept of an enactment date is key. And what this means you know, in terms of the U.S. is actually having something make its way through Congress to President Biden's desk and President Biden ultimately signing that bill. So that's kind of the first key date to keep in mind when we're talking about this is the enactment date. And then the second kind of key date to keep in mind is the effective date. So when would the items passed in the bill ultimately be effective? So those are kind of the key factors to keep in mind in terms of, you know, do companies have to worry about this in 2021 or not? Now, those two have a have a degree of separation you've touched on a little bit from a legal standpoint in your last answer. Let's break that down a bit further, starting with the enactment date. Can you tell us a bit more about the effectiveness of that particular legal device, so to speak. I think the easiest way to kind of walk through this is probably through an example. So let's say we have a calendar year company, you know, so a December 31st, 2021 year end company. And now let's imagine a few different scenarios. So in our first scenario, we have a tax bill signed into law on or before December 31st. So within this kind of tax year and this financial statement year on December 31st, 2021. So if that's the case, since the bill is signed into law within this current year, the 2021 year, this would be considered as enacted within this company's financial statement period. And the company would be responsible for accounting for the impacts of the bill within this December 31, 2021 period. So, so that's the first one. And that's you know, fairly straightforward. And then a second scenario is we have the same December 31st, 2021 year end company, but now the tax bill is signed into law after a company issues its financial statements. So in this case, let's say a company is a public company and issues its form 10K financials in you know, about February, but the tax bill isn't signed into law and officially kind of quote unquote enacted until March, 2022 now. So it's not enacted until March, 2022. Well, since the financial statements are already filed and issued and the event occurred after they were filed and issued, this would not factor in, you know, the financial statements already went out the door. So instead, the enactment would essentially be factored into the Q1 2022 financials. So in the form 10Q that's issued for Q1 2022, which would be completed about, you know, the April, May timeframe, it would be considered there. 
So that one's also kind of straightforward. You know, in the first scenario, the bill got passed but during the year. And in the second scenario, it got passed after the financial statements were issued. So it's really a non-event. Now there's the third scenario, which is the most confusing. And it's the question of, well, what, what happens if the bill is signed into law in between a company's year-end date and the time the financials are issued? So if we think about, you know, once again, this example, December 31st, taxpayer, they generally will file their 10K in about February. So if this is the case, there's obviously this, this time differential between these two dates. And if this happens, basically a company would be responsible for disclosing exactly what happened in that time differential and what an estimate of an impact of the event is within the financials. And, and this is known as what's called a subsequent event. So subsequent event to the financials. And it kind of may seem you know, straightforward and easy, just throwing an estimate in there and adding some discussion, but actually coming up with this estimate of a potentially really complex tax bill could actually be very difficult. And companies may actually have to do this in a really short time period. So depending on the dates, the subsequent event could in theory come up shortly before the issuance date. And then companies may have to scramble just to come up with an estimated impact and a financial statement disclosure. And then they have to you know, get signed off on it and get approval from their auditors all before the 10K kind of goes out the door. So that third scenario may honestly be kind of the most concerning for companies if that potentially falls out. Those are kind of the three potential doors there. And then just to add another layer of complexity here, is that really centered around US GAAP? And and IFRS, the international accounting standard, will will generally follow suit here, you know, except for one difference. So IFRS has this concept where legislation must be accounted for when it's either enacted or it's something called substantively enacted. So U.S. GAAP, there's only one concept, it's just enactment. And then IFRS has these kind of two concepts. And for IFRS, this substantively enacted, tough word to say, essentially means that only minimal actions are needed for a measure to actually become a law. So, you know, you could probably see how confusing this could get. Luckily, in this case, in the case of a U.S. tax change and a U.S. tax law change, generally a bill will be enacted and substantively enacted at the same time. Because basically those two events occur when a bill is signed into law by the president or when there is an override veto by both houses of Congress. So, you know, for our purposes here, talking about this Biden tax plan and when these tax law changes could be effective, enacted and substantively enacted are essentially the same here. Now, that is the enactment date. Can you tell us about the effective date? As for the effective date... This kind of comes into play in terms of when and where items are needed to factor into the provision. So, you know, legislation in general, such as the Biden tax plan, could include items that are retrospective or that are effective for periods before the bill is signed into law, or it could be prospective or effective for periods after the bill is signed into law. So it could also be a mixed bag. They have forward-looking items, and then they also have items that look back. So it could be a little bit of both. And as a reference point in the 2017 tax reform measure passed by President Trump a few years back, which, you know, I think many people will remember, the majority of the provisions were prospective and they were effective beginning in the 2018 tax year. So the year that is subsequent to when the bill was signed into law. If we take another example, going back to the current state of affairs here, let's say the Biden tax law signed into law in December. So December 2021. 
it's very possible that the changes, you know, could be prospective, they could be looking forward, but then let's just say they took a different approach, they could also be retroactive. So they could be retroactive to January, 2021. So that, that would be quite different from what happened in 2017, but, but also possible. So probably more likely that the changes are gonna be prospective and go forward to be effective for 2022, but it's quite possible that it goes back to 2021. So now for thinking, you know, how does this actually matter for my provision? Let's say the bill is, is enacted in December 2021, but all the items in the bill are considered effective in January 2022, which, you know, seems kind of like the, hopefully the more likely scenario. So that would mean that the impact of the law basically must be accounted for in a company's December 31, 2021 provision, given the enactment date, you know, if the enactment date is in 2021, needs to be accounted for in that 2021 provision. However, since nothing in the bill, in our example, is effective until 2022, one may think that there's nothing really to do in the provision because, well, nothing's effective in the 2021 year. It's only effective in the 2022 year. And, you know, if we think about the provision on a more technical level, on the current provision side of the house, you know, looking at the current year activity of a company, which is, you know, very similar to your tax return, that's essentially true. Right. So the current provision is really isolated to thinking about the current period and isn't worried about the past or the future periods. So that's essentially true. You wouldn't really need to worry about a law that becomes effective in 2022 on your 2021 provision. However, you know, as we've touched upon in the past, the deferred provision is, is quite a different animal. So since the deferred provision tracks tax assets and liabilities that impact future periods and is a roll forward from the previous period to a future period, the value of these items must take into account these enacted changes. So in other words, for a deferred tax asset or a liability to be truly accurate, they need to take into account the enacted changes. And this includes even ones that are not effective until a future year. So this is kind of where the biggest headache comes in when you're when we're talking about, you know, enacted versus effective and the kind of interplay between the current provision and the deferred provision. It's it really comes down to when you have this situation where you have an enacted law not effective until the future, you still really need to worry about it for your deferreds. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So now we have all of the wins, 
of the tax provision and the potential impact in place. Let's dig into the why. Uh, It seems the headline with regards to Biden's plan is raising the corporate tax rate to 28% from its current state of 21. How would this rate change impact the provision? When we think about how to truly evaluate the impact of the rate change on the provision, we really need to come back to this enactment date versus effective date concept. So let's go back to one of our examples from earlier. And let's say the tax bill is signed into law or enacted in December of 2021, but it's not effective until 2022. So basically a really similar fact pattern to the 2017 tax reform and and a pretty realistic possibility for, for this plan as well. So for a calendar year, December 2021 company, this would mean their current provision is, is not impacted by the changes for 2021. So just like we talked about before. Instead, the changes would only start appearing in the current provision in 2022. So starting Q1 2022 and then beyond. So the current provision for 2021, on the other hand, would continue using the 21% US corporate tax rate. So the corporate tax rate in place currently. So that's current and that, that's pretty straightforward. But then on the other side of the house, you know, back to what we were kind of touching on before, the deferred provision would very much be impacted in 2021 by, you know, a potential rate change here. So kind of as mentioned before, for a deferred tax asset or liability to be truly accurate, they must take into account all the enacted changes. And this includes even ones that are not effective until a future year. So in the case of a rate change, that means that companies need to revalue their deferred tax assets and liabilities from being valued at that 21% corporate tax rate as it is currently to the new corporate tax rate. So, you know, by its current plan, that's 28%. And obviously, you know, that's potentially subject to change, but it would basically need to revalue the deferred tax assets and liabilities from being tax affected at a 21% rate to a 28% rate ultimately. So this revaluation obviously has an impact on the deferred schedule But then this impact makes its way onto the rate reconciliation as well. And then it directly impacts companies' effective tax rates. So in our example, even though the law wouldn't be effective until 2022, because it was enacted in 21, it would have an impact on companies' 2021 effective tax rates. Right. The reason why is, you know, it's basically this revaluation of deferred tax assets and liabilities. And this was a huge factor in 2017 with the Trump tax reform in 2017, you know, the rate went the other way, went from 35% to 21%. Here we're going actually up now instead of down. So we're going from 21% to 28%. So, you know, if we compare kind of 2017 to now, in 2017, companies that were in a deferred tax asset position had to take a P&L hit or they would incur additional tax expense on this revaluation of their deferreds. And they ultimately had a higher effective tax rate as a result, since it basically caused this asset that they had, you know, this asset on their balance sheet, this deferred tax asset to be worth less. Originally, it was valued at 35%, and then it got changed to be valued at 21%. So they, they lost value in this asset, and therefore they had to take a P&L hit. Their effective tax rate went up. Right. However, here in 2021, companies that are in deferred tax asset position would have a P&L benefit, actually or less tax expense on the revaluation. And they would ultimately have a lower effective tax rate since it's basically causing the deferred tax asset to be worth even more. It would be going from being valued at a 21% rate to a 28% rate. So, you know, it's an asset that's essentially going up in value because of that change now. And then obviously, you know, if we, if a company was in the other position a deferred tax liability position, it would be in the opposite direction. So, 
In 2017, they would have had a nice benefit in a lower tax expense and ultimately a lower effective tax rate on revaluing the deferred tax liability. While here, potentially, you know, in 2021, they would have an additional tax expense and a higher effective tax rate on the revaluation. That's kind of the main items related to a rate change. And then there's one kind of sort of sub-bullet to mention here on a rate change is from a state tax perspective. So, you know, we were kind of talking about how this rate change impacts a provision, impacts the deferred from a federal rate change perspective. But the, the thing about this federal rate change is companies get a deduction for their state tax liability on their federal return. So right now, that state tax deduction is valued at 21%, the corporate tax rate. So you, you would have your state tax expense basically times 21%, and that would be your benefit for your state tax on your federal tax return or, or your you know, federal current provision. So if the rate spikes up to 28%, all of a sudden that state tax deduction actually becomes more valuable. It increases in value by that 7% rate differential. And that additional federal benefit will basically partially offset the changes to the deferred tax assets and liabilities. So in other words, if a company's in a DTA position, deferred tax asset position, and they receive a P&L benefit due to these DTAs becoming more valuable with the rate going up, it's not as straightforward as simply saying, you know, you take that DTA and you multiply it by 7% because that's the difference between the new potential rate, 28%, and then the old rate, 21%. And then you get to your answer. Instead, you kind of have to worry about the state tax piece along the way. And the state tax piece would kind of reduce that impact slightly, potentially going from 7% to a bit less, depending on the company's kind of state tax exposure here. But just wanted to mention it as kind of a quirk that's thrown in here and, you know, a rate change, it, it, it's not just looking at the federal, you really have to take into account a holistic view of a company's tax picture, and that includes states. So just to recap there, the TCJA dropping rates caused companies to shift around their deferreds in one direction. And now President Biden's plan might have them reversing course to best accommodate that bump in the rate. So let's say if you just had a five-year depreciation period or longer back in, say, 2017, you may be going from that initial 35% rate down to 21%, then possibly back up to 28% on the same asset. Given that these types of temporary differences impact companies over multiple years, are there any planning opportunities here to take advantage of in the rate of change for those items? Yeah, in fact, you're, you're alluding to something that was done quite frequently, honestly, in, in 2017, and something that saved a, a lot of companies a lot of cash tax. So the idea is really taking advantage of different tax rates, and, and that's known as something called rate arbitrage. So it, it's really a helpful planning strategy in the context of, of timing differences or temporary differences in particular, this, this concept of rate arbitrage. So, you know, for kind of a review, when we think about temporary differences or timing differences, we know that the book accounting and the tax accounting treatment differ in individual years, but over the course of the life of the item, eventually book and tax will ultimately end up being the same total amount. So that's why they're, they're timing differences. So in a particular period, book and tax are different, but over the life of an item, over the life of a company, ultimately those two items will be the same. So now if we think back to 2017, you know, the, kind of the most recent tax reform, the most recent time there was a rate change, the rate dropped from 35% to 21%. And companies were kind of eager at that point to push off income from 2017 to future years and to bring as many deductions as possible 
into 2017. And ultimately, this was, of course, to pay tax on income at a 21% rate, but to receive a deduction on items at a 35% rate. So you want to really maximize the value of your deduction and get that 35% rate benefit. And you want to minimize the impact of that income and have it only taxed at 21%, the lower rate. So the way companies were generally able to kind of pull this off and do this was through something called a change in accounting method. And that's executed on a form 3115, which is an IRS form that's filed with your tax return, as well as you have to send it in separately with your tax return. And it's really a formal request that must be submitted to the IRS in order for this type of change to be effectuated. And so there are certain changes which are quote unquote automatic, and then others which are not automatic. And, and the ones that are not automatic, you actually have to submit a formal request to the IRS and you have to receive approval for the change before you actually implement it, before you file a tax return that shows that change. However, the automatic ones, you just need to file the form with the company's tax return at the same time, and you could automatically effectuate the change. So those are kind of the two different types of accounting method changes. And you know, now if we fast forward to the Biden tax plan and thinking about kind of this year, it looks like the rate's gonna increase from 21% to potentially 28%. And if this is the case, companies will want to do just the opposite of what they did in 2017, right? So they may want to accelerate income actually into 2021, and then they'll want to delay their deductions into future years. So the easiest way to kind of think about this is probably, you know, through an example again. So if we think about a temporary difference here, we could talk about accounting for inventory. So if a company has been accounting for its inventory using a certain methodology, you know, to date historically, it might benefit from changing its method to account for the inventory to decrease what's called its cost of goods sold, which is really just an expense, the expense of the inventory sold in 2021, and then correspondingly increase this expense in 2022. So the benefit here would be that in 2021, the company would get less deduction and have to pay higher tax, which you know, sounds kind of counterintuitive, but that higher tax would be at the 21% rate. And then they kick the deduction down the road a year into 2022, and they get the higher deduction at the higher rate, 28% rate. So all of a sudden, the deduction becomes more valuable. This type of rate arbitrage really, really ends up, what it does is it ends up creating a permanent benefit from a temporary difference. So, you know, it's really pretty powerful for many taxpayers in an event that many folks will want to take advantage of because, you know, like we've spoken about, a temporary item is, is temporary in nature. Generally, you would think that there's really no impact over the life of the company in terms of tax rates. You know, you have an unfavorable adjustment one year, you have a favorable adjustment the other year, it kind of nets out. But here, in this situation where we have two different tax rates, you could really take advantage of this and you turn this temporary item into a permanent savings. One, you know, sort of qualifier to note here is a company cannot have two accounting method changes on the same item within a five-year period. So this is to kind of limit this planning and you know this over-aggressive planning with constantly changing accounting methods. So that's kind of the IRS's way of, of limiting it. So if we think about it in this context, if a company made a method change in 2017 to get the rate arbitrage there for Trump's tax reform, they may not be able to make a method change here in 2021 or 2022 to get a rate arbitrage opportunity again. So, you know, it's possible that some folks are, depending on when the tax bill is actually enacted, 
it's possible some folks are actually locked out of doing a method change because they already did one, you know, just a few, couple of years ago. One thing to kind of note is, is most of what we talked about here is, is sort of surrounding cash tax planning on the rate arbitrage. But, you know, all of these things, the impact of the method change, it would flow through the deferred tax roll forward as well. And then it would impact the current provision. So everything we're talking about here has a, has a strong impact to the provision as well. But the focus of rate arbitrage really is around cash tax. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Now, clearly, if they're putting limitations on it. That means the rate change is in itself a big ticket item here and one that companies will definitely be keenly interested in. Besides the corporate tax rate going up from 21% to 28% in President Biden's plan, are there any other key changes being proposed that may affect the provision for income taxes? The plan is still pretty scant for details, you know, currently. However, there are some kind of high level items that have been called out outside of this rate change, which is really the item that's kind of gotten everyone's attention. So, so the first one to mention is, is a new minimum tax, and it's up to 15% of what's called, you know, quote unquote, book income on large corporations with net income of $2 billion or more. And, and by book income, this is really referring to financial statement income. So what's your actual income on a company's financial statements? So this may just be as simple as net income on a company's financial statements, but it's not 100% clear right now. And it also may include some type of credit allowed to kind of offset this related to timing differences. So you don't have companies kind of getting whiplashed into not receiving a benefit on these temporary differences for their regular taxable income purposes or this minimum tax purposes. So that's still kind of open right now. There are, they've kind of published in Biden's plan that there would be allowed to be some certain tax credits allowed to, to offset this minimum tax. So foreign tax credit, R&D tax credit, potentially credits for taxes paid above the minimum book tax threshold in previous tax years. So there will be some credits offsets allowed. But as I said, you know, the, the details on this are not very flushed out yet. And, you know, we'll have to just keep monitoring what happens there. So that's kind of the law perspective, the tax law. And now if we think about the tax accounting, you know, how this impacts the provision, we don't know exactly how this is going to look in terms of the impact of the provision yet. But if we think about kind of a, a similar item, one thing that kind of stands out as something vaguely similar is what's called the base erosion anti-abuse tax, which we're going to touch upon in a little bit later. It's known as the BEAT. And this is around today. If we look at how this is accounted for, currently companies on their provision will account for this as what's called the period cost, which is essentially just a permanent difference. 
and it, and it makes its way into their current provision as a permanent difference, and it makes its way into the rate reconciliation as a rate dropper, but it doesn't impact the deferred taxes. So the thought would be, you know, at least my, my personal perspective, that it seems likely that this type of minimum tax would probably be treated similarly on a provision. So it would probably be more of a period cost item, as opposed to, you know, the other way you could treat it is, is as it impacting your deferreds. So can you tax affect your deferreds at the minimum tax rate instead of the, you know, statutory rate? So could you tax affect your deferreds at the 15% rate instead of the 28%, the potential new corporate tax rate at 28%? And that seems really unlikely. And that didn't happen with B. And, you know, I, I can't imagine that happening here. We still don't know exactly what will happen, but, you know, that's kind of, most likely what will happen in terms of the provision treatment there. And what companies will be most affected by this change to the minimum tax in terms of calculating their provision? That's a really important item to kind of clarify here. And according to current estimates, it's really not many. So only about 180 companies would even meet the $2 billion financial statement income threshold. And even less, only about 45 companies or so would actually have to pay the tax according to kind of current estimates. So we're really just talking about the biggest of the biggest companies here when it comes to this particular item of the of the bill. Understood. Are there any other changes that have a broader impact across even smaller companies? In addition to the rate change, which is kind of, you know, as I mentioned, kind of the big ticket item of this, mm. the plan also contemplates several other changes to foreign taxation. So US taxation of kind of foreign income and and more international tax rules. So the first one is the plan looks at repealing what's called the, the Foreign Derived Intangible Income Deduction, or FIDI. So this FIDI deduction relates to a portion of a domestic company, so U.S. companies' intangible income that is derived from serving foreign markets, essentially. So previously, this item was a, a permanent benefit on many companies' tax provisions, reducing their effective tax rates and reducing their cash tax on their current provision. So if this goes away, you know, companies' effective tax rates may tick up a bit from this kind of being repealed and going away, which, you know, is laid out in the plan currently. So, so that's number one. Another item that is currently considered being repealed in the plan is the BEAT, which I alluded to a little bit before, the base erosion anti-abuse tax. And this is basically an alternative tax related to certain deductible outbound payments made to foreign countries which would essentially erode the U.S. tax base. So, you know, if you picture a U.S. company paying large sums of payments out to foreign countries, you know, really targeted at low tax countries, it would, you know, be eroding the U.S. tax base and then kind of shifting income to lower tax jurisdictions. But the B is actually, you know, fairly broad in application. And, and it's being considered to be replaced by something known as SHIELD, which appears to be a bit smaller in scope and that it only denies deductions on payments to foreign countries based in a country that does not have a certain minimum tax rate. So essentially, this shield will look to curb profit shifting from the higher tax jurisdictions to the lower tax ones, which is really kind of what B was essentially geared for, but it just was very broad. It was very, you know, broad concept, and there weren't kind of any anything to kind of rein it in, any kind of constraints. And it looks like shield would be a little bit more focused and a little bit more reined in. And so while we don't know exactly how this kind of item would be accounted for on the provision, you know, it, it's very reasonable to probably assume it's going to follow beach treatment of being a period cost, kind of as we were discussing before. As a last item to kind of mention here, guilty or 
global intangible low tax income. So this is currently a tax on foreign earnings. So U.S. companies, foreign earnings, basically of their foreign subsidiaries, which is at a reduced rate of 10.5% or half of the current 21% tax rate that's currently in effect. And it's allowed to be offset by foreign tax credits. So the Biden plan would essentially increase the guilty rate to 21% from this current 10.5% rate. Number two is the current rules kind of allow for an offset against the guilty amount for a portion of tangible assets in a foreign country. So if a company has significant tangible assets in a foreign country, they could drive their guilty amount down. But the Biden plan would actually take this away completely. So you wouldn't have any more of this tangible asset benefit, which is known as QBI. And then the last thing to mention with the guilty calculation is companies can offset income of one foreign country currently with a loss of another. So, you know, if you have high levels of income in one country, but losses in, let's say, several others, you can kind of offset those and and mesh them together to kind of bring that income down and ultimately reduce your tax liability. However, in the Biden's plan, currently contemplates a country by country approach. So it may result in some difficulty in offsetting losses against income across countries. And, you know, a lot's unclear here, particularly on the guilty front, including this kind of country by country approach and how far tax credits would play in. But it seems like this could potentially, you know, hurt taxpayers and be a little less friendly than the current guilty regime. Now, on the provision side, guilty would still impact the provision the same way, which is generally through a permanent difference. However, given kind of what we just talked about, it seems like the guilty amount may very well increase for many companies, and that would serve to drive up the effective tax rate as well. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We want to thank Howard for joining us today. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time.